Hey, this is Bob, and you can get a hold of Aloe Treatment Centers at 888-595-0235. That's Aloe Treatment Centers in Malibu and Silver Lake, 888-595-0235. Tell them Bob told you to call. Welcome to the Don't Die Podcast, sponsored by Aloe Treatment Centers. They're out in Malibu. They're in Silver Lake. It's a treatment center I started with some friends. We want you to get the right treatment, the right program for you, and stop dying. Good morning, everybody. Um, you know, I look around this room. It's just, like, amazing. Look at how many people are here. Oh, my goodness. I thought there was going to be, like, 40. So... <laughs> Because I've been doing these things for a long time, since 2003, when I had some of my first Oxycontin addicts come into my treatment center. And I was like, what is going on in America? And the volume of prescribing, I don't know if you remember back then, it was astronomical what people could get their hands on, just when there was the 20s. And so, and I saw these people go into withdrawal that lasted forever, that lasted for two weeks. Your average, I don't know if, you're, if you've kicked before, but it usually lasts three to five days. And these people were sick for weeks. And, and so that's at the time when Dr. Drew and I worked at Los Encinas Hospital. And I was like, Drew, what is going on with this? And he goes, it's a synthetic opiates. And that was when I started paying attention because I knew nothing about prescription drugs. I'm a street drug addict. You get it. Somebody pulls a balloon out of their mouth and gives it to you for $20. I knew nothing of going to a doctor and going to Walmart and getting heroin. And make no mistake, that's what was happening. And so now it's 15 years later and we're all here and we all paid attention. You got policy changes, you got passion, you've got people that care, who've lost their mothers, their sisters, their brothers, their uncles, and we're sick of it. And we're gonna hold the people accountable who caused this. And we're gonna help the people that are caught up in this horrible plague on our society. That's why we're here. So, but I gotta do one thing before we get into it. So my son, I don't know if you have children, but I have two little children, two and eight, almost three and eight, and they can't explain what I do for a living. You know what I mean? Because when you get to be eight in second grade, you know, people ask, what do your dad do? And they're like, he helps people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, so I said, so about a year ago, Elvis, my son, said, I really, you know, he's a little executive functioner. He's like, I really need to know what your job title is. <laughs> so I said I was a supervisor. And so now he tells people, my dad's a supervisor. And now kids are more sophisticated, like the fifth graders are saying, supervisor of what? <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so he knew I was coming here and he wanted to see what it is. So can I just take a picture for one second of all you guys? So here it is. So there, I can, I can uh, give it to him and he can show it to his friends. That's what I do. I hang out with these people who care, who help, who go the extra mile, extra hours. Some of you drive to rural parts of Wisconsin. Um, I love Wisconsin. My dad was born in Rice Lake, Wisconsin. Um, I don't, you know, this is a side note story for some, some of you that understand. So my dad was, at the end of World War II, he was sent out and... He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know whether he was going to come back. That was a very scary time. And, 
And uh, he, he, they, the way they were sending people out, whether they went to the South Pacific or wherever they went, was at Terminal Island, California. And he had born in Rice Lake, grew up in Cloquet, Minnesota, only knew ice and snow. And he's like 20 years old, and he's in Terminal Island, California in November, and it was sunny out. And he said to his buddies in the Army, like, if I live through this, I'm moving to this place. <laughs> and he lived through it because he got stationed in Alaska to protect us from the Russians. So, and that's why I grew up in, in Southern California instead of, you know, Cloquet, Minnesota. So, um, the, the thing that I like to talk about, you know, we're going to get into to policies and, and I'm a wonk. I can talk about that stuff and all the initials of all the new things and, you know, DSM comes out every eight years and they got new titles and we have to memorize them and act smart and have all the all this details. But really, what is the essence of what we do? What is the essence of what, what, what caused those women to be in the position they're in? Trauma, multi-generational poverty, lack of opportunity that leads to helplessness and hopelessness. This is why what happened in the late 90s and we are still recovering from is so evil. Because the industry that, was, that exploited where hopelessness and helplessness was in this country when you look at where the opioids were distributed in masses, it was the Rust Belt, right? It was Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky. They did it calculatedly. Don't forget that. That the most vulnerable are susceptible to addiction. I know we don't call it addiction anymore. The most vulnerable are subject to are, are, uh, substance use disorder, right? And I know why that is, because the addicts that started coming to me in 2003, 2004, didn't fit the MO of addict. They were still gainfully employed at that point because the, the pharmacies hadn't caught up and we hadn't caught up with how to stop it at its root. But so they, they were employed. They were still married, many of them. Their parents were still married. They didn't suffer sexual abuse or physical abuse, maybe neglect, right? And so, so the system had been traditionally since the 60s and Synanon that evolved into Hazelden and all the rest of it, if you know the history of addiction treatment in America, was traditionally criminality, you know, childhood sexual abuse, prostitution, crime, junkie. And so the new generation, this new created, brought to you by pharmaceutical America, didn't fit the addiction and they had a very difficult time because Dr. Drew can be very harsh. You're an addict. You gotta say you're an addict. And they were like, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not like these people. And so SAMHSA in I think 2003, 2004 came up with this title that never really caught on. It was called Pseudo Addict. Does anybody remember that title? You're kind of an addict, right? Well, if you're sick, unless you have opiates, you're, not, you're addicted to them. But the diagnosis of addict, of addiction, that didn't fit. 
because the treatment for that kind of addiction was trauma therapy and 12-step abstinence-based treatment. Luckily, the evolution of thought about addiction treatment and what addiction is, and we're all representing that, an integrated community of people, whether it's medication-assisted treatment, whether it's dealing with the homeless population, it's all, we're, it's all interwoven and we're all working together to solve it, right? So I like that it's open-minded, but it's a little hard for an old guy like me to keep up with all the titles. I don't think substance use disorder is gonna catch on, just if you wanna know my personal opinion. <laughs> I think we're gonna have a new one in like three or four years. So I thought I'd talk about what it is. What it is is a lack of love. What recovery is, is love. I know you can't, let's, let's get initials for it, L-O-V-E. You know how we have CBT and this thing and M-A-T and M-M-A-T. What about L-O-V-E? Because that's what you, when you go to work every morning, that's why. Because you, as a child, cared about other people. There's a very great book called Naturally Therapeutic. I've always been naturally therapeutic. I cared about, you know, you know hurt animals, kids that didn't have mom's home, I'd bring them to our house. There are some of us, I believe you'll find later on, once we know science better and the brain better, that are genetically predisposed to compassion. And I think this room is filled with people like that, right? Because you have friends, I have friends, like why do you care so much about drug addicts? And I really don't have an answer. <laughs> like, I just do. I find them fascinating. It, it draws something out of me that makes me want to go and talk to them, right? And have those conversations that are tough, you know, because you're in a conversation with an addict, you want to be kind, but you don't want to be manipulated. It's like, it's kind of like, a, it's like an intellectual Vietnam going on right there when you're, when you're <laughs> inside it, right? And I, found, I find it fascinating. And so my story is I grew up, my dad survived the war, obviously, nobody invaded Alaska, and he did very well for himself in Southern California. And so I was the last born in my family, I have three older sisters, kind of. I mean, some of you might know if you've seen the movie, but, um, and I think you can watch the movie. There's a movie called Bob and the Monster. It's about my life. Is it online or something? Huh? Um, yeah, it's, it's, and we're going to have a talk about it tomorrow. So, but I grew up just thinking I have three older sisters. I didn't know any better. And my dad had done very well. So I was one of the first millennials born in 1961, spoiled as an MFer, <laughs> right? Kids would come over to my house. And in 1969, I had a colored TV in my bedroom, if you know how spoiled that is. So why I relate so much to millennials and rock musicians and no brown M&Ms and all the spoiledness of entitlement in America is because I embody that, right? And so it's part of why I went to so many treatment centers, right? I didn't really want to go. That's another thing that, see, if some of you are in the 12-step world, that thing of the Eskimo, sometimes you don't need an Eskimo. That's my, that's my thing. So what happened was my best friend, who was way worse of an addict than me, got sober at the Salvation Army in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he comes back to LA and he's like, you're the same as me. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I've never been yellow or homeless, you know, all the things that addicts say. 
because he had uh, jaundice. So, um, you know, and I was, we were like 22, and I was like, he's yellow. You got to stay away from him. Um, and I, I always thought he's just way worse. Then he goes and gets sober, and he comes back and he decides, I need to get sober too, right? And that created me going to rehab after rehab after rehab, truly, right? And I'll just tell you what. Um, so part of that entitlement, part of that brattiness. So they do this intervention on me. I knew what it was, kind of, and I knew I was outgunned. So if you're trying to plan interventions, always no, make sure the person is outgunned. Don't go in there even, Stephen, you're going to lose. You've got to have some of the greatest interventions I've ever seen. Um, I come from the music community, so there was a record company president, and he had discovered a band, and they were very popular and whatever, and so he was on drugs, and and they were very close friends with him. So they scheduled the intervention. It's at a hotel. He walks in. It's this band and their manager and a couple friends and his girlfriend, right? And he's a record company president. So they give the spiel with the interventionist, you know, we want you to get help. And everybody reads their letters, and he's just standing there pat. Um, yeah, well, I'll think about it. Thanks for your concern. You know what I mean? If you've ever been a part of an intervention that doesn't go so well. <laughs> and they had planned on this. And they said, okay, well, so you won't go. You won't accept the help. And he said, not right now. And they said, hold on one second. And they went in the bedroom of the hotel, and his boss came out. That's a way to do it. <laughs> and all the boss said, the owner of the record company said, will you go now? And he said, of course, <laughs> you know what I mean? So you gotta, you gotta have that person that can really make it happen, and that person was there, the people that controlled my life and the people that had so much to say about my life um, were in that room, right? And so I went, and they wanted me to go to this place in LA, this is 1988 in Los Angeles, and I am very, you know, sophisticated rock musician type guy. And I had read in the National Enquirer that Elizabeth Taylor went to a place in Minnesota. And I said, well, if I'm going to go to rehab, I'm going where Liz Taylor went. I'm not going to this place. I said, find the place that, where Liz Taylor went. Well, that place was Hazelden. And boy, oh boy, that was a wake-up call for a spoiled brat rock musician from Los Angeles. It's a life-changing experience that took nine years to, to fruition. But what I learned at Hazelden was love and honesty and truth. And they didn't really care whether you liked what they were saying or not, but they cared about you. It's this fine line of how do we bring love to people who feel unloved and are blocked from love. Um, some people do it excellently. You do it with a smile, you do it with the truth, you do it with many different ways. And I believe very much in this theory of attachment, that what, what we're really talking about with the, all the initials and all the stats and all of that is a lack of ability to attach, right? Whether it's a societal problem, I believe it's a societal problem at this point. I don't think it's just in the opiate addiction population. I believe we are a society that doesn't know how to love one another, doesn't know how to respect one another, doesn't know how to have compassion towards people who disagree with us, and I see it everywhere. So attachment is this thing where we're friends, 
but we can disagree. We have love and respect for one another, but we can have different opinions about things. Ch child rearing is the one that I'm most familiar with the last 10 years. And like people got wacky ways of raising children these days. Let me tell you, there's no rules and they come to school when you want. I mean, I live in Los Angeles, but you know, uh, it's true. They have a school where they come when they want. Like when would an eight-year-old want to go to school? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? So, so, and I come from this old school. My dad was, you know, the great generation and, and, and I come from this more orthodox thing that I always rebel against. But I actually respect what I'm rebelling against. I actually respect the authority and the commonsensical um, kind of uh, predominant belief. And I rebel against it, but then I adjust and I make it, make, make it work my way, the way that makes sense to me. I did that with AA. I do that with, you know, Los Encinas Hospital. It's a whole other story. So I really worked in a hospital with a tie and everything for years and years and years. And, and you know, it was in, in 2000, 19, 1999, remember when the computers were all going to crash? I played a concert at the Forum in Los Angeles in New Year's Eve. And we were all, I didn't even have a computer, really. I don't care about stuff like that. But, but everyone was all nervous. And I remember sitting in the dressing room and thinking, because I'd only played for like an hour. And I was so exhausted. I was 39 years old. You got to jump around a lot. I'm not the healthiest guy in the world. I have hepatitis C. <laughs> you know. And I just remember feeling sick and exhausted. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I mean, I could do it for five more years maybe, but this is, you know, you get shin splints and it's just, like you're old. That rocks, Rock and roll is not for old people. I, apparently it is, but it wasn't for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, I can't imagine what the Rolling Stones feel like after they play for two hours. It's just like, um, they're 75 years old. It's unbelievable. So I had this, I had been volunteering because I'd gotten sober four years earlier, five years earlier, and I was volunteering at what Musicians Assistance Program that is now known as Music Care, as you see it on the Grammys. Um, so I'd been volunteering there and I thought, and the guy who directed that program, his name was Buddy Arnold, he was a, just a force to be reckoned with. He was amazing. He had shot drugs with Billie Holiday. You know, that's all Courtney, I think, says it, or Kurt. Like, uh, that's all you have to say to musicians, and we'll bow down and kiss your feet. You know what I mean? Because that is the, that's the queen. And he played saxophone with her. And he was a drug counselor. And he had a drug program. And he had this miraculous way of talking to musicians who are the most spoiled and entitled and frightened people on earth. And he had this way of just cutting to it. And I worked on the, uh, on the advisory board, the fundraising part of it. And I just thought, I want to be Buddy Arnold. Now, you understand, when I was 14, 15, I saw a videotape of the Sex Pistols and said, I want to be Johnny Rotten. That was the only other experience I've had where I had an idea and I followed it through to the T. You know what I mean? And so I wanted to be Buddy Arnold. And so I went over there and I started volunteering more and more and, and getting more and more involved. And he said, you know, I want you to succeed me. 
I, you know, I'm a, I didn't have very much good language skills back then. I didn't even know what the word secede means. So I was like, what does that mean? And he's like, I want you to take over once I retire. And I was like, whoa. And I knew that was going to be a process. It was a five-year process. And I had to go to school, and I had to you know, learn how to run groups and learn how to document and all the stuff that all of us have gone through. What well, wasn't really, discipline wasn't really a part of my world. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> my life from probably 1983 to 19, you know, 2000 was get up when I want, do what I want. I got to do something for one hour later tonight. Right? That's not the most disciplined. That's not like get to class at 8 a.m., just parking at school was just so overwhelming for me. You know what I mean? Because I had an 8 a.m. class. And like, how do people do this? You had to get up at like 6. You had to take a shower and get and drive and then drive around the parking lot trying to park. And then you've got to go to school for four hours? I can't do this. Right? But Buddy and the board and the people there helped prod me along. And you got to understand, I'm also very selfish and self-seeking. And understand that the carrot that was dangled in front of me was to be the director of the greatest drug program in, in America, in my opinion. It has a 50% success rate. It, it is unlimited resources because the Grammys fund it, right? And it's just so rewarding and it's so exciting to be a part of. And most of the musicians that you've heard of that are sober got sober there. Or, or, or support that program. So, so even with this carrot dangled in front of me that my life is going to be a dream until the day I die, I was like, I can't do it, I can't do it. I dropped out of school three times in four years, right? But eventually I, I stayed, and eventually, like everything in my life, I'm a slow learner, it takes time. I did it. And then Musician's Assistance Program folded into Music Cares, and Music Cares is much more corporate and much more organized, and, and I was odd man out, right? And so I had to go work him. Drew Pinsky, the doctor on celebrity rehab and all, all those things, he heard that I didn't have a job, and he said, oh, come work with me. And I was like, and I knew he worked at this prestigious um, psychiatric hospital. There's no way, if I don't fit in at Music Cares, how am I going to fit in at a psychiatric hospital with doctors and nurses and HR departments? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right? So he goes, no, 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 I'll help it along. And you just, you know, we'll, we'll do it. So the first thing was the interview and the HR and all this stuff. And so... I don't know if you have had a background like I have. Some of you have. Some of you in the back have had a background like me. <laughs> Some of you right in the front have a background like me. So I told the lady, you know, I've been arrested a few times, but I've only been convicted one time, right? <laughs> I don't know if, if any, because drugs are very illegal in the 80s and 90s. It's interesting that the opioid, I don't want to be controversial, but it is interesting how America deals with drug crises in the 1980s when it was a problem in predominantly uh, uh, minority, let's say. The solution was put them in prison for life. When the problem is white people in suburbs, the problem is treatment. 
I mean, I, I accept the blessing because I believe in treatment, but I just find it interesting that there's two different solutions to two different drug problems over 30 years. Um, so, so the idea was, you know, get, 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 in, get working at Los Encinas and I have to get through the HR department, so I tell her. So two days later she calls me and says, um, Robert, could you come in and meet my supervisor, whatever? And I was like, this is bad. This is, just, just, you know, this can't be good. And so I met with her in her office and she said, Robert, you've been arrested 19 times. <laughs> and I was like, but I, being arrested is not being convicted, ma'am. That's what I said. <laughs> and she, they had never had somebody that worked at the hospital that had been arrested that many times. So just getting in the door was almost impossible for a chemical dependency counselor like myself, right? So I finally get in there and I have to wear a tie and Drew asked me to cut my hair and I did and, and then don't wear a hat and I just abided by all the rules. And, but I was just so scared, you know. What, never forget that when fear, when fear is present, love is lost. So, so every time, you know, people always say, how can you speak to so many people? I like love and God and the universe. I'm not, I don't want to, I don't have to worry. Um, if I thought I had to be smart or I had to say the right thing or that's all fear, that's all lack of love, right? So I just know we got to be here for an hour I'll talk and then we'll go eat and whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, but I was really scared. I was like six years sober. I was, you know, in a world that I didn't understand the words, I didn't understand what people were talking about, and I just went about my business. I had a little clipboard, and I would just walk around with my tie and not do much and just try to get through to 5 o'clock so I could go home and, and relax from all this fear, right? So about four months into it, Drew comes to my office and goes, what the hell is going on with you? And I was like, Drew cusses a lot. I don't know if you know that or not if you listen to his podcast. So, so I said, what? I, you know, I thought I was in trouble. I thought you know, I'd said the wrong thing. And he goes, no, but I'm not hearing anything about you. It's like nothing. I go, well, thanks so much for the confidence, right? I think I'm doing my job right and not stepping outside the bounds of, of what's permissible at a psychiatric hospital. And he tells me it's, it's, I'm doing nothing. You know what I mean? He's not, he, he expected everyone to love me and me to be this kind of charismatic, effective, kind of take charge guy, and I was frightened. But that pissed me off that he said he heard nothing. You know, I expected to hear a lot of good things. I'm hearing nothing. And I said, well, I mean, it's really tough. I don't belong here, Drew. And he goes, sure you do. You need to just be you. That was the wrong thing to say. So about two weeks later, he asked me to run the family group. He, he was going to be out of town. He did this once a week, 150 families in the attics and throughout the hospital and the community family group. And I was myself at that group. And I, apparently I said some things that should not be said in a for-profit hospital. <laughs> like, you shouldn't pay for your children to be here. They're grown adults. They should be in a Medicaid facility, so they really take this seriously. Not the thing to say at an elite psychiatric hospital, right? It's mostly the hospital of spoiled children with co-occurring disorders. So, 
So he doesn't, you know, I thought, I, and people, you know, it was a rambunctious meeting and, you know, it was nice. And I thought I finally was me. And he gets back from his trip and he comes in my office and he goes, did you say that people shouldn't be in the hospital? They shouldn't pay for their family members to be in the hospital at the family group? And I was like, that's all out of context. I was saying it in a larger... <laughs> I was talking about codependency. I was talking about lack of boundaries. I was talking about a lot of stuff. But yes, I might have said that. <laughs> so he goes, Bob, there's a difference between pushing the envelope and not even acknowledging there is one. You need to learn that balance. And the next five years of my life was learning that balance. How to be me and, and provide the, what I have to offer, but still respect the institutions, right? And that's been my ongoing kind of life struggle for 20 years, really. And, and it's here today also. <laughs> but, but I learned a lot because I dug in and I cared about this subject matter. I cared about how psychiatry sees substance use disorder. I cared who came up with the modalities. Who came up with them? You know, we, we refer to treatment centers. Do we even know what, where it comes from? What is the Minnesota model? What is it? Who thought of it? Who said it was going to be effective? Why is it such an institution? I think these are the questions we've been asking the last three to five years. St probably should have been started to ask 15 to 20 years ago. What works for one person might not work for another. We don't have to keep insisting that this way of doing things is the only way. And it wasn't until the last four or five years, till actually this opioid tsunami, that people's minds started to be open about medication-assisted treatment, about methadone, about Suboxone. My mind has been opened. Um, not so much that I think it's a solution in the long term, but I'm sick of kids dying. I don't care what it takes for them to not die, right? And I think that's a part of what's driving all of our passions. We all know, I've had to call mothers to tell them their children are dead, right? I don't know if you've had that pleasure. Some of them howl, howl like a wolf. Some of them are very stoic and you know they're just gonna collapse as soon as they get off the phone. Some of them are mad at me. I'm sick of that. And so that's why we started this Don't Die movement, and I've been a big pusher with a woman named Stacy Matheson to get Narcan and Meloxone everywhere. I mean, you gotta understand, I went to the city of Los Angeles. Another thing that's great about Wisconsin is look at how many people are here. There's only like six million people in this whole state. There's four million people in Los Angeles. So you can have a great effect, right? LA is this bureaucratic nonsense where you don't even know who you're supposed to talk to, right? So finally we get to the people and they, I think some of you probably face this that are in harm reduction. About eight years ago, they said that, that needle exchanges and Narcan and all these things encourage drug use. City of Los Angeles said that. But guess what? City of Reno didn't. City of Las Vegas didn't. City of Milwaukee didn't. 
because you have more control over your local government. You have more control over what is right. You have more control over what will be effective. There is, there is less obstacles to get wonderful things accomplished. Like you just talked about earlier. I mean, you're talking about, you just made changes a year and a half ago, and you're seeing them save lives this month. That stuff doesn't happen in huge metropolitan areas, right? So, so getting, the, getting this back to this Wasasina thing. So I'm just, I'm learning and I'm, I'm passionate about it. One of the things, if you're a musician, when I was 11 years old, I think, I was listening to the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds and I loved that record. Um, it's such a beautiful record. And on records, when you had them when they were big, you could read the liner notes back before I was old and I can't read anything. I can't read with reading glasses or without them. It's crazy when you get old. Um, but you could see who played bass. You could see where it was recorded. And you could see who engineered it. What, it, and I just lived in that world for years and years and years, and every passionate musician I know knows, knows those things. I've been to the house where Led Zeppelin recorded in England. I've been to Gold Star Studios where Pet Sounds was made, right? I'm, I'm obsessed with music and everything about it. The first time I met a bass player named Herbie Flowers, he's the bass on Walk on the Wild Side by Lou Reed. That I met him, I was shaking because music is so important to me and all these details matter. Well, what, what happened to me at Los Encinas Hospital is I became that passionate about treatment and mental health disorders and mental health treatment and addiction and, and therapies and modalities. I became as obsessed as I was as a kid about music about this subject and I devoured it. I was single at the time and not very involved. I was just like, I worked and I was obsessed. That was it for about five or six years. And I really dove into it. But I was still me. And the greatest compliment I ever got, I, I rose up being only a KDAC counselor to being the co-clinical director of a psychiatric hospital. I don't brag much, but you guys know what that, how hard that is. And so a new hospital corporation bought the company, and the, you know, the new CEO wants to meet everybody, and I'm the co-clinical director, and I come in, and he's looking at my phone, he goes, you don't even have a BA degree? And I was like, good to meet you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so there had never been a clinical director of a psychiatric hospital that didn't have a BA, but I knew everything about that hospital. I knew every person who worked there, 430 people. 103 beds, right? And so, but, the, but that guy, Jim, who came to be my mentor and taught me so much about hospital administration, um, we had to go to this board meeting with the overall hospital called Aurora with all these board, you know, the, all the different hospitals, something like this, but like a third the size. And, you know, you had to wear a suit and tie, like a real suit, not just a sport coat with a white shirt and tie like at work. And I come to the conference, and he looks at me outside, and he goes, Jesus, Bob, even in a suit and tie, you look disheveled. <laughs> that was my greatest compliment of my life in mental health and addiction treatment administration. So <clears throat> I became obsessed with it, and didn't, we didn't see the prescription drug thing coming. We were really tooled like Hazelden, like Betty Ford, like where everyone who I worked with trained at Hazelden. We weren't ready for how 
insidious the prescription drug problem is. And you're talking about we had had an addiction treatment program in Los Encinas Hospital since 1941. No one had ever died. In 2009, three people died in six months in our hospital. Because prescription drug addicts are, I have a lot of theories about it. They're not as sophisticated an understanding of drugs as street users, right? The one kid, so tragic, 18 years old. You know, when you come into a detox unit, you get put on clonidine, your blood pressure, blood pressure lowered, and he was taking Oxycontin on top of that. Died in his sleep, in his bed. Every junkie I knew knew not to do that. Every single person I knew for 20 years of using and being sober knew you don't do that. And, and, and now you had this new generation that didn't know not to do that because they learned how to do drugs on the internet. When you see an upper middle class kid, I asked this one kid who had track marks all up and down his arm, he looked like Opie from, from uh, you know, Andy Griffith. Like, hey, Bob, how are you doing? And I'd be like, how is this kid a stone-cold junkie? This gets back to the pseudo-addict or what addiction is evolving and mutating. What is this guy? What is he? And, you know, I said, how did you learn how to shoot up? He was only like 16 years old. He was in our adolescent thing. He said, on the Internet. He had never shot drugs with anybody else. He learned on the Internet. He bought it from some Craigslist thing. And he just did it in his bedroom like you used to sniff glue. It's, you know, not that glue is, but it's way safer than the opiates. Come on. <laughs> so he, that's what it reminded me of. It reminded me of the kids I had heard about. I never did that, but it reminded me of kids that used to huff glue when I was a kid. They were kind of weird kids. He didn't really want to hang out with them. But, but he, was, he was shooting heroin just as if it was sniffing glue, right? And I, I was just, I never, and he, I said, show me, and he showed me. There's a bunch of tutelages, uh, tutelages at that time on YouTube that you could learn how to shoot up. Oh, just so teenagers can learn how to shoot up. So, so we were unprepared for this. And 2009, 2010, we had these strategies. And so I thought I was going to retire there. I thought I was going to work there forever. And I realized, because I'm a junkie, and I don't mind saying I am, that's, a, that's an honorable name. It's not something to be ashamed of to me. It is to a lot of my clients. But I'm a junkie. And what junkie means is you know which way the wind is blowing, right? When you're going to the spot, for some of you that, that know what the spot is, and you just know something's going on and you pull out. Ryan's laughing. Oh, you know, you know that. There's an intuition. There's a street knowledge, right, that NWA talks about. There's just a knowing, right, that I just knew we're gonna, they're going to, you know, we're on television, we're famous. Who's going to take the blame for this, the hospital or Dr. Drew and Bob, the guy in the hat, right? And I, could, I knew it. And so I resigned. I knew, like, they're going to end up, in the end, just allowing us to take the blame. And sure enough, the media kind of caught on to it and crucified us and were paying too much attention to celebrities, seemed to be the narrative. 
Um, you know, that's a narrative. See, half of you believed that just then. That was not true. I don't pay any more special attention to celebrities than I do to a regular population. It's not true. How dare you think that? But when the media, when the LA Times says it, when, when Entertainment Tonight says it, this hysteria that's starting to happen in America, you believe it. We've got to stop believing this nonsense. So I knew it was coming, da 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 da, lawsuits, da da da. So I resigned. And I thought, I'll start my own treatment center. I'm Bob, right? Back to that little spoiled brat from 1969. I'm Bob. How hard can it be? So I borrowed $100,000 from two of my best friends, started a treatment center in Hollywood called Hollywood Recovery Services. Greatest building, greatest house, you know, just everything. And nothing. No clients. I going around, like, what's going on? Um, two things I didn't think about. Uh, parents don't want their children in Hollywood. They think it's a drug area, right? They much prefer that it's in Malibu. Now, listen, I, I can't, you know, change what people believe. There's drugs in Malibu. There's drugs in every sober living, accessible to every addict in America, anywhere, at any time. But this stigma that Hollywood Boulevard and Hollywood Hills and has, that was a mark against it. And then I didn't want the insurance industry telling me what to do. So it was cash only. And it was very affordable, actually, by Los Angeles standards. Insurance was starting to come about in 2000, the Parity Act, and Obamacare was upheld at the Supreme Court. So now insurance was the game, and I refused to do it. So within two years, I was bust, out of a job, 50 years old, 50 years old, out of a job, unemployable. I went to a friend of mine that owned a treatment center called Promises, and he had always wanted me to work there. And I go, David, I'm all yours. And he goes, no way, you are too hot to handle. I don't need your negative kind of, you know, celebrity kind of thing. And that was crushing, right? So now this thing that I care about so much, I have so much knowledge, I, I, I can't. I can't express it. It has no value because we did a TV show or because people believe I care more about celebrities than regular people. I mean, just think about that. You know, why, why, that's ridiculous. I care about addicts, and some addicts are celebrities. And we had celebrity rehab because America is obsessed with celebrity culture. And I wanted to get addicts humanized destigmatized, demystified on television and show that this thing comes from abuse, trauma, neglect. This thing has co-occurring mental health disorders. This thing that you keep stigmatizing people with and throwing them in prison is, is what Celebrity Rehab was trying to do, the opiate crisis happening in, in white suburban areas did for America. Now it's a, now it's a problem. Now it needs treatment. But I really felt a passion that we need to get addiction out in the open and show how, how brave and courageous it is to overcome this problem, how it daily battle it is, and the compassion and love the people who do this work, which is everyone in this room, feel about what they do. Because if you remember, you know, 
2005 was the time of Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan, everybody laughing about these two children who have obviously mental health issues and addiction treatment, and America laughing at them every night on Jay Leno and David Letterman making fun of children with mental health disorders. It made me so angry. And so that's why it came about, right? And so now I was unemployable. What do I do? What do I do? Well, a lot of you know the courts is a very good place to work in addiction treatment or substance use disorder. So I w worked in the courts where nobody cared you know, where I came from or what I did. And I loved working in the courts for three and a half years. Um, and that was the beginning of alternative sentencing, right? And it was fantastic. I'll tell you some of theirs, champions all over this country for addiction treatment. There's a woman named Judge Bell in Las Vegas, California, Las Vegas, Nevada. Amazing woman. So she ran the drug court and she started seeing all these Iraqi and Afghani veterans coming in with, uh, with you know, basically they were addicts who had committed crimes and she'd give them a free pass, right? They, they, they served their country, you know, not enroll them and try to get to the VA and get some help and whatever. And then three months later, she'd see them back, same, same guy, same gal, right? And then again, and she started thinking about it, talking to her colleagues like, I thought giving them the opportunity that they would wake up to what's going on in their lives and honoring their service by, by not treating them the way that we treat the regular population would help them, and it's not helping them at all. She started a veterans drug court. That's how big the problem is in, with our returning veterans. You have to start a drug court specifically for veterans in Nevada. Think about that. Talk about trauma. Talk about hopelessness and helplessness and wounds and, and unable to sleep and anxiety and depression and all this stuff that all of our clients deal with. And you're a hero. So I, I dealt with a lot of veterans in that court situation. Um, I got involved with wounded warriors. And I've just been a, watching all across America all these little things that you, all these different kind of uh, systems. In Milwaukee, I, I met the harm reduction crew and the homeless uh, advocates. All these networks of help and love and compassion. This didn't exist 20 years ago. It's magnificent. It's amazing. We can change this. But never forget, I think, I think everybody always says, what is your message? My message is love. Don't forget that a person needs self-love to survive. They need opportunity. They need jobs. They need accountability. They need compassion. They need to be told the truth when they're full of shit. That takes a long time, and it's laborious, and time-consuming, and expensive, and it won't end until people get hopeful. So what addiction to me, or substance use disorder, is lack of hope, right? Hopelessness. What recovery is, is hope. That I could have a job, that I could have a a place to live, that I could go to the grocery store and buy what I want. I remember the first time, because I hit a pretty low bottom, 
the first time I, I played a concert back sober, it was like I was about a year sober, and you know, everybody in America loves nostalgia, right? We've all gone and seen the, our favorite bands from when we were a kid. So I played a show like that, and my band, the people that I was in the band with, were still on drugs, and I, we were in the dressing room, it was a great show, so exciting and inspiring, and I felt so good about life, and sitting in the dressing room, and all our friends came and said hello, and then I noticed everybody, two guys in my band looking at me, like, when's he gonna leave? And then I saw drug dealers in the hallway, Actually, my old drug dealer, Frenchie, who everyone loves, <laughs> was not sober yet. Um, and I thought, oh my God, they, I, they want me to leave so they can do their thing, right? So from this greatest triumph of my first year of sobriety to driving home at 12 o'clock at night, feeling lonely, lost, alone, not a part of, not connected. And my girlfriend at the time said she was trying to cheer me up, and I was just like, I'm just a loser. You gotta understand how your clients can go from, it's the greatest day ever, to I wanna kill myself. I know you can't comprehend that maybe, but they feel that way because they get stuck in feelings, the feelings are too extreme. Um, and so I was feeling that way, not suicidal, but just hopeless. And she said, you know, because we were living pretty much hand to mouth and I had just made like a bunch of money. So she said, let's go grocery shopping. And I was like, what? I want to kill myself and you want to go grocery shopping? This is crazy. It was magnificent. We got two shopping carts. We had both, we had been using together for three or four years. Then we got sober and lived in a one-bedroom apartment and they're not the best neighborhood in Los Angeles um, and we struggled and we sometimes you know didn't have money to eat sober and I now I had this money and we got two shopping carts and we were like little kids like bought everything we wanted you know but like you know not the most insightful little kids at 30 years old Bought a bunch of ice cream and then we forgot we had it in there and it all melted. Because when you buy, like we bought $300 at the time in 1996 of groceries. It took hours because we lived on the fourth floor with no elevator and there's no parking and you have to walk. You're like, by the time I got the ice cream, it was all melted. But it was such a feeling of empowerment. I know, I know we all have we can go grocery shopping and we can, and our cupboards are filled and we're blessed. But when you haven't had it, it's a miracle that you have the abilities to go grocery shopping. Grocery shopping is a big deal. I had a musician friend that everyone, you know, talks about that I helped get sober and, and uh, he hadn't, he, he, I had him move into my buildings, you know, a little single, so that I could watch after him. He first lived on our couch, and then he got a, a single apartment in my building. And anytime he was very, very, like you're talking about one of the most fragile, destroyed souls of a, that addiction has ever seen. And so when I was go grocery shopping, I would say, hey, John, you, would you want anything? Tell me what you want. And he would make a little list of like Trader Joe's type stuff, you know. And finally, I got a little tired of it after about four months. Like, I'm not your servant. Come with me. And he hadn't been in a grocery store in like 10 years. And he was like, 
nervous. And I was like, get a cart. And he's like, you know, that, that I'm a real person in the real world. And you saw him coming alive like, I can do things. Now, the addict doesn't want to admit they're frightened of the supermarket. But they are sometimes. They don't want to admit that they don't think they'll ever be gainfully employed. So they say they don't care, right? Don't care is a go-to line for our population. They do care. Every, I, I always say, you know, there's some rules of thumb when I'm tra doing training students. I always say, when they say significant things with emphasis, they mean the opposite, right? So when they say, I don't care, with that kind of compassion, I know that they care so much. And they need to be loved in that moment and encouraged, not confronted, not, not picked at. They need to be supported so we can talk about that. When they say, uh, when, and another part of it that's in, kind of in the opposite is, I'm so depressed, right? Not depressed, so depressed, right? What does that mean? So it means, I always say, this, the word so means it's not just depression. It's a lot of other stuff too, right? because it's feelings of, of hopelessness and helplessness and embarrassment and, you know, teeth are a big problem in our population. I had no front teeth when I got sober. I was so ashamed. I would never admit it to anybody, right? Because you can't admit weakness in this world. Not just the drug world. In America, you can't admit weakness. And so when I want to cry, when I see myself in the mirror because I have no front teeth and I look like I'm going to die, I have to compartmentalize that to, to protect myself. And so the populations you're thinking are doing really good, there's these markers that addicts hit, right? First off is getting sober. Secondly is housing. Thirdly is, you know, money and employment, opportunity. Then comes, you know, courts, warrants, um, getting a driver's license. A kid, you know, I'll give you the example. We had a kid, he's not a kid. I call everybody kid who's not my age, but, but we had a guy like, he's like 30, um, and he's gone through our whole program in, in, in Los Angeles called Aloe House, um, and he's like in his fourth month. And I, I go to the sober living house, and he's just bought a motorcycle. And I'm like, oh my god, amazing. And he had great insight about how you get a great motorcycle for a cheap price. And he said, I, kept, I just kept looking on Craigslist and looking on the internet, because a lot of guys, you know, build a bike, and then they get married, and then they have a kid, and then they got to sell the bike, and nobody wants to buy the bike. Right? Is there anybody who's had that experience here? <laughs> so he goes, he was like, you know, looking for that perfect bike. And I looked at this bike, it like cost 20 grand to do what it was, right? It's just customized in every way. And I go, how much are you paying? And he goes, six grand. And I was like, six grand? Awesome. So he's like sober, he's going to meetings, he's doing everything, he's met every treatment goal, he's our shining pupil right now, right? And he bought a motorcycle and everybody's talking about it. He has warrants in New York State and can't get a driver's license. He's driving the motorcycle without a driver's license with warrants out for his arrest. We had to, I found this out, we had to go deal with that. He wasn't really happy about us dealing with that. 
apparently if you drive very carefully, nothing will happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, and why I say this is because these are these instances where we're so, e so used to the triage of what we do, we forget to have those people talking in that video is long term. And we cannot take our eyes off them and their needs and their wants till, till I always have this rule like, when is somebody not a sponsee or a client anymore? Till I forget how I met them. Right? It's usually somewhere around the two-year point. I forget how we met. Do you understand? Some of you that work directly with addicts know what I'm talking about. I forget how I met the person because they're so involved with my community and my life and in the world that I live in, I forget that they were my client, that I did an intervention on them, that, that you know, their wife called me. I mean, and I started recognizing there's a certain point where I'm just looking after these 40 or 50 people, and then they just become a part of the regular population of my friends where I forget how I met them. Now, this is, like I said, time-consuming, laborious. You have to have phone conversations that, you know, you're not getting paid for, and, and you have children, and you have needs you need to meet. I used to do it a lot more before I had children, um, but... We all do it in one way or another. We have, you know, somebody, somebody asked me, uh, a client asked me one time, am I your favorite client, Bob? And I was like, and he was kind of. So then what do you do? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it's like, which is your favorite kid? We all have a favorite kid, too, but we don't want to admit it. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I said, oh, you know, I love, I love everybody, dude. And he goes, no, but I'm, I'm your favorite, right? And I was, I, you know, and I always search my spirit as to what the right thing to say is. And I said, yeah, Ryan, you are my favorite, but don't, don't tell everybody or make it known or go brag about it. He now owns his own treatment center. I think if I would have said no, it, would have been, it wouldn't have been true, A, so I would have lied and and a lot of you are criticizing that I have favorites, like you don't have favorites. People that you're really rooting for? Come on. You know, my weakness is moms and their children. We have a place called Miriam's House in Los Angeles. And I think you have a lot of services for moms and their, and their children in treatment. We don't have a lot of that in Los Angeles. It's a real shame that there's not more places. But, but Miriam's house is this place where my treatment centers, uh, the clients, when they get to the volunteer level, volunteer there at the, at, the, at the treatment center where moms are in treatment with their children. And, you know, it's a really heartbreak. It's a, it's a, you know, if any of you work in that, I don't know how you work in it every day because I know somebody who's not motivated. And how do you deal with that when it's a guy, when she's got two little kids? Like that just, I haven't resolved that counter-transference yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I kind of, I, I have a step, two steps back from direct patient care there. But I just, gosh, we all want white picket fences and happily ever after. But when you're in the belly of the beast and you still have a, 20, 10, 15, 20% success rate, that means eight of the 10 women in front of me are gonna use again, probably 
around their children. We have to really be more effective and more focused on that because this opiate crisis has killed so many people, right? So there are so many children. We've created a foster care system in West Virginia and Tennessee. I mean, I've seen it. I've been there. Yeah. How about this? You have both parents die within six months of each other. You're a five-year-old boy. You live with your grandmother who's addicted to drugs. That's what's going on, I'm sure, in, in certain parts of your state. That's what's going on in places. And so how do we kind of get down in the real deep sadness of it all, right? That's a little, I, I, I'm aware of it, but I think some of you are better equipped to deal with it because I, I, my, heart, my heart just can't handle it, can't take it. And so we all do where, we, where we're most effective. Um, the last thing I'll say is, and I don't know if it's truly the little boy who said this. You can look it up on the internet. Um, in, I think it was in 2000 or something, um, the, the country of South Africa wouldn't allow antivirals. They had a huge AIDS ep epidemic, and they wouldn't allow antivirals. Like, where do these people get these ideas? You know what I mean? Don't get me started about don't get your kid vaccinated for measles. But, um, but they wouldn't allow antivirals. So people were dying unnecessarily of AIDS in, Africa, in South Africa. And so, you know, I love this antisocial, really smart, good people like us. World Aid Conference decided, let's do it in South Africa, right? And you can look this up. A little boy whose parents had died of AIDS because of lack of access to, to the medicines for HIV and AIDS um, spoke. And it was so powerful. And you can look it up on the internet. And he said, he spoke a little bit about his parents. And he spoke a little bit about the people that had helped him. But then he said, and people ask me all the time what they should do. This is like a 10-year-old kid, 8-year-old kid, 10-year-old kid. He said, do what you can where you are with what's in front of you. That's what we're all doing. What we can, where we are with what's in front of us, right? and to become whole, more healthy, more whole ourselves, so we're more effective at dealing with what's in front of us. And I'll say this, you know, I'm big on therapy, and I think that there's not this population in America that's sick, and then there's this huge swath of the population that's well. Most of America is very sick. In materialism, in sex, in, in power, in, in, you know, just the college entrance controversy, or it's disgusting. It's disgusting, right? So, so I had a great teacher back in Los Encinas days. His name was his, uh, Dr. Kim, Dr. Roland Kim. And he was my psychiatrist, and he did talk therapy only. Medication last resort. That's what he always used to say. I know that's not too popular in this room, but that was his idea. So medication last resort, not first strike. That's what he would say. So he did talk therapy, and I was doing it with him for about six months, and I go, so Roland, what do you think? And he goes, I think you're very ill and don't know it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Now that was the right moment. A lot of it was buddy-buddy because we're colleagues or whatever, but I asked him a direct question. And he answered it very honestly and directly. 
And I said, really? And he goes, yes. You, if you want to get better, it's going to be hard work. I didn't even know there was something wrong with me all that much, right? Because I can, we can trick ourselves. As long as I'm not taking heroin, as long as I'm not lying, cheating, and stealing, I'm a fucking miracle. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I was depressed. I was acting out gambling. I was a big shot, you know, big shotism. And he said, I don't, I don't screw around with this. If you want to get better, you have to come here two times a week. One time you pay, one time insurance. So he was saying, put your money where your mouth is if you want to get better. And, and I was like, I signed up. For three years, I went to therapy twice a week. It changed my life. It, it made me be able to be a parent. It made me be a better human. It made me understand and have more compassion and more insight, right? So one day we're sitting there. This is a, one of the wisest men I've ever known. And, and I said, Roland, he said, you are, you are doing excellent, Robert. You, you know, almost everything we've talked about the last few months is, you know, second stage development. And so I was, you know, I'm getting complimented by my idol. I'm like, yeah, all right. I'm driving home, I'm like, second stage development? What the hell does that mean? Right? I don't know when I gotta go. Is it time almost? Oh, okay, I thought you were giving me the timer. So he said, second stage development. So I'm driving home, I'm thinking, I'm like, what the heck is that? Um, so I go back two days later on the Thursday, and I, go, I come walking in, I go, Roland, we gotta talk about something. You know, because I'm, I'm an Aquarian, and I'm kind of, you know, got manic obsessive, compulsive. I gotta say the thing, or I'll forget and talk about my mom or something. So I walk in, I say, we gotta talk about this thing. What is second stage development? What the hell are you talking about? You know, because that sounds really remedial. That sounds like not doing so good. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're saying I'm doing good. It's like second two doesn't sound like way up there. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he goes, oh. I go, what are these stages? What are you talking about? And he goes, stages of development. Um, and I said, what, what are they? And he goes, well, they're not really a thing, but they're, they're becoming fully realized, becoming a healthy person who can attach and detach, who can love and be loved, who's open to criticism, doesn't accept unfair criticism. And he explained to me what mental health was. And I knew when he was explaining it that I didn't have it. Right? And I go, so you're that. And he goes, sometimes, sometimes, sometimes. I go, how many people in this country you think are healthy like that? And you know when really smart people think for a long time in front of you? You know that uncomfortable thing? Have you ever had that? I asked them. I asked a, a really intelligent friend of mine whose sister w was an assistant to Stephen Hawking, explain to me the string theory. And he just looked up for like eight minutes <laughs> of how to explain the string theory to a dumb person. <laughs> this is what he was. <laughs> so that's what Roland did, only for like a minute and a half, thank God. And he goes, I don't know, three to five percent? Not many people in America healthy. And I said, how many people, he's from Korea, I said, how many people in Korea? He goes, about the same. Not many people healthy in the world. He goes, you can see it in the world. Infant, first stage development. Good, bad, right, wrong, black, white. 
happy when you get what you want, unhappy when you don't get what you want. It's an infantile society. And we reward it. We accept it. We say that's what the society is, right? And there's this rare kind of population, I think, in the helping field where we're trying to become enlightened ourselves as we're trying to help those you know, behind us, maybe, to get to the stage we're at. There's an ever-evolving, ever kind of replenishful kind of existence, right? Um, so I hope you continue your journey. I hope you help the thousands and thousands of Wisconsin, how do you say it, Wisconsinites? Is that the thing? Wisconsinians? Wisconsinians? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, that you help and heal this, this state, because I think you can heal this state, and it can be, it already is an example to other states and America as a whole. Your death rate's going down, what you're doing works, it's effective, it's passionate, I've seen it, I've read about it, I see it in this room. Look at all the people here. Every one of you have a dozen or two dozen or three dozen or four dozen people you're caring about and trying to help get out of the, the place that they're in of self-hate and self-destruction and the risk of death and hopelessness and helplessness and you're trying to bring them to safety and freedom and empowerment. There's no more honorable uh, occupation in our country right now, to me. This is, this is amazing what Wisconsin has done. We had a bet, I, you know, the don't die guys are how I'm so involved with Wisconsin, don't die Milwaukee guys, or don't die Wisconsin. And we went and I saw, I was here about four or five months ago, and I saw all the integrated systems that Milwaukee has, that the homeless advocates and the harm reduction people and the MAT people and the absence-based people all know each other, all are respectful of one another, and are all friendly and supportive of one another. I had never seen that anywhere. It's always very competitive, right? It's always, they don't understand. There's a lot of finger pointing in this country, right? You know, my opinion as an absence-based treatment professional, I have an opinion on homeless advocates, right? I didn't see that in Milwaukee. And it was like a miracle. And I bet $20 that the death rate would go down, and it did, and Patrick paid me last night, <laughs> right? And it's because of you people. It's because of the respect of one another that I think is a Midwestern value, but more importantly, it's expressed in multi-generational people. That I just, you don't know how lucky you are to live here. I know the ice is bad and the snow is bad and the cold is bad, <laughs> but you really don't know how envious I am. Every time I come here, I want to move here, but then, you know, the ice thing. If you, if, if you could get rid of the ice thing, everyone would move here. You know, maybe we are going to get rid of it. Who knows? <laughs> right? There's another opinion that divides people. But, um, you know, that, what I saw there, I went and told everyone in L.A. about. And, I, you know, I try to do that with all the different kind of systems that, that I 
have friendship and access to. And Dr. Drew's the one who pointed out there's hope for places like Wisconsin. There's hope for places like Ohio. There's hope for places like West Virginia. If the people rise up and care, when you get to Massachusetts, we got some brothers from Massachusetts here, it's much harder. California, Los Angeles, it's, it's really hard because there's so much bureaucracy and there's so many obstacles and there's so many opinions and it's so entrenched to be competitive and critical, right? Um, we've had homeless advocates for my whole entire lifetime since the 70s. We have the worst homeless population. We now have the plague in Los Angeles because of our homeless population, right? I started saying, why don't we call it all one thing? Because it's all interrelated. Mental health, these people have schizophrenia, undiagnosed, untreated. They have meth addiction, meth substance use disorder. Let's just go over the substance use disorder thing. So just the term, when it started to be used like three or four years ago, you know, I'm, I love language, I love ideas, I really think about them because I have this obsessive kind of thinking mind. And I thought, it is something, I like it, a substance use disorder. And I was laying in bed thinking about it one night, like three o'clock in the morning, I thought, that means there are people that use substances correctly though. It suggests that there are certain people that use substances wrong, incorrectly. So there's a suggestion that people could use meth correctly. And then I started, because it's three o'clock in the morning and I was in a manic episode, I started thinking, maybe I'm one of those people. <laughs> right? And I started thinking, like, you know, now that I have, you know, a job and house and everything, maybe it'll work out. Right? So that's another sign. I'm not well. I'm just trying to get better. <laughs> you know? I talked about it at work the next day, and instead of like, you know, my partner who, who isn't as pronounced an addict as I am, he was like, I've been thinking that a lot. You know what I mean? That like, maybe, maybe there is just a continuum, and I'm way over here, and maybe, I said, but by the idea that you've been abstinent for, abstinent for 10 years, and that as soon as you hear a new title like substance use disorder, you start thinking, maybe I could use. That makes you an addict, in my opinion, <laughs> right? That's not how healthy people would think. They would just think, oh, nice, a new title, less stigma, right? I know that that's why we're trying to find a word, pseudo-addict, substance use disorder, because of the word addict. Well, let me tell you something. America is addicted to everything. to Kim Kardashian, think about that, to food, to power, to media, to Facebook, to Instagram, to everything. America is one 350 million population addict. And we don't like the title, right? We don't like that word. Well, let's find a word for what that is instead of try to go around about and try to make people feel good, right? I'll give you this example. So I grew up before technology, right? I have two children. They, they can't imagine a world without technology, right? So we need to think, how are we going to do this, right? 
I, I looked up, one of the great things about technology is I looked up, I didn't know how many people live in Wisconsin, right? I just saw the numbers and I thought, amazing, amazing. And then I thought what Drew said, like, it's, it's kind of not that densely populated. It's more amazing what you guys are doing because of the population is so low, 5.8 million people. It's amazing what you guys are doing. It's revolutionary. Don't forget it. Don't give up. When the cameras go away and the sexiness of opioid conferences goes away, no, I got a tip for you. I'm from the streets. The meth problem is coming, right? So, so beware, buyer beware. We're not going to solve this problem, but we're going to have fun trying as each kind of nuance comes our way. And thank you for having me, and I'll see you, see you at the break. Thank you. Hey, this is Bob in the Don't Die podcast. Got 100 people a day dying of drug overdoses, and it's got to stop. Aloe Treatment Centers wants it to stop. We want people to get educated about drugs, about treatment. We want you to learn, laugh, and live, but first and foremost, don't die.